Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us more important to me anyway than a, than a real estate superstar because he is that, but also like a, a, an interesting guy with a very, 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 very interesting past and perspective. And so this is going to be a great conversation. I absolutely promise, I guarantee it. We are speaking to, or I am speaking to, and you are listening to the CEO and founder of Sterling Rhino Capital. He is none other than Chris Roberts. Chris, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really excited to share some stories back and forth. And hopefully when we're all done, the uh, the listeners will uh, will have some value to take away and, and hopefully we inspire them a little bit. I think that'll happen. Uh, Chris, give me, uh, before we talk about what you're doing and have done in real estate, I believe you're up north of me. I'm in the Bay Area. I think you're in Washington. I might be wrong. I often am. But tell, tell me the, the Chris Roberts background, the, the interesting stuff we were kind of talking a little bit about before we started recording. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, everybody has a story, right? I think um, I think it, it doesn't matter in life if you if you had the white picket fence, the perfect family life, the brothers and sisters and whatever, or you grew up on your own with with nothing, right? Um, my story was of of strife and challenge. I had some some obstacles that not everybody has in their lives, but uh, but I've learned throughout the years as I share my story. Uh, there are many that have had struggles and challenges as growing up. And and I did. I actually grew up in Southern California. So I was about 14 years old and mom moved me out of there because there was, um, you know, there was, um, you know, a lot of, lot of violence and gangs and traffic and just pollution and things like that. And she just wanted to get me out of there. So she moved me up to Southern Oregon. And then shortly thereafter, she went back to California and I ended up um, going out on my own, actually, at about the age of 15. And, uh, and that uh, taught me a lot about... Um, putting in the work and, and earning your way through life and, and just trying to struggle through things and figure it out, which made me a great problem solver. So I went on to build a sales and marketing company and then uh, d- uh, dove into real estate a little bit and then scaled into multifamily. Now we're doing development. So that's kind of a short story, but yeah, overcome a lot of adversity when I was younger and learned a lot from it. So I'm excited to be here. Chris, so 15, you're on your own. So what did that look like? So were you like, where did you live? Did you find roommates that were adults older than you? And, you know, you, you rented a room. Were you in some kind of care? Like, did you find a relative to live with? Like, what was that like? And where and where were you at the time? Were you in SoCal or were you in Southern? Where, where, where exactly were you on your own that age? Yeah. So we ended up uh, in Southern Oregon with, with some family friends. And, um, after my mother decided she wanted to go back to California, she said, well, you're going to go with me. And I said, no, no, I'll stay here with them. And kind of just, you know, um, (laughs) sort of bamboozled her a little bit. It's not like I had to be on my own. I could have gone back to Southern California with her, but I I didn't want to go back there. And, uh, and I just kind of decided to stay with them. Well, that lasted about a night, literally a night. I stayed with them one night and then they they uh, they got into it a little bit, and I didn't have many choices. And I had some friends, so it's interesting when you think about someone being on their own at a very young age. They they could literally be homeless. Um, they could have no friends or family, no parents, or they could choose to go out. I chose to go out on my own, 
and uh, and stayed with friends. Some of my friends were a little bit older, but you know, they had parents, they had things going on. It wasn't like I could just go and live with somebody for the next three to five years. So that didn't last very long. I, I surfed on couches quite a bit, um, actually was homeless for a very short period of time. And, uh, and just kind of worked my way up into, into earning, earning an opportunity to rent a room at one point from somebody as I worked several jobs and, and, uh, and then just kind of struggled through and figured it out. Yeah. So very interesting, very, uh, wow. And, and, and that you've overcome all that, uh, what's, what's interesting is somehow there's something, there's some guiding force within you that I think you were born with and inevitably have fine tuned and developed that, that was able to overcome you know, that degree of adversity. Um, when you say you started a sales and marketing company, what does that mean? Yeah. So, um, I was an independent contractor for a large company as a wholesaler. So it'd be comparable to, um, maybe perhaps like a pharmaceutical rep who has a, uh, has a 1099 contract with a company to go, go sell their products to doctors or maybe an independent, uh, uh, like soda vendor or Pepsi distribution person who drives a truck or a FedEx uh, route driver, maybe who gets contracted out through FedEx to go and, and, uh, and deliver those packages for them. I was an independent contractor for years, um, selling wholesale products and my company, because I was a 1099, uh, was an S corp. So I, I built out this S corporation and picked up other lines and was basically selling. So I was just selling products to, uh, at a wholesale level and had to build that up, right? Because you, you basically, you're paid on what you sell. And so in some cases, if I would pick up a line, it might be zero and I'd have to build it. And one particular line we took from zero to $10 million. And, and I'll go back to selling just real quick in general. I, I think there's a, a misconception out there about selling. You know, a lot of people, they'll look at car salesmen or product salespeople and say, oh, I don't want to be sold anything. I hate salespeople. And that's not the case because really good salespeople are not salespeople. They, they just try to educate people, earn their business, try to help them understand the product assortment and, and and if they build enough trust, then then eventually they they're in the person's business. It's not like it used to be back in the day, you know, snake oil, door to door stuff like that. Um, I was simply a middleman from a manufacturer to a retail level, and I was the person who pretty much distributed those products um, through selling. So yeah, the one uh, product that you took from zero to ten mil, what product was that? It was a finance line. So I had um, I, I I was wholesaling furniture with larger furniture stores and then uh, picked up a finance line because they needed financing for their consumers, right? And that line was new in the Northwest. And so they gave me the opportunity to start from zero. And I remember my wife telling me, gosh, why would you take on more? You know, because I work maddening hours. And I said, well, it's it's opportunity. I feel like being at zero, literally no customers in the Northwest <laughs> there's an opportunity for me to grow it to at least one customer. But I had, I had pretty broad vision and thought I could get that thing uh, grown pretty, pretty substantially. And so I did, I went out and I eventually, I think I had like 111 customers at one point uh, doing over $10 million in sales just with that one, one line. And, and that goes back to that mindset of, you know, just looking at things as an opportunity and being optimistic, glass half full type stuff. And, uh, and then going out there and just, just doing everything you can to try to solve problems for customers and put you in the position um, for them to want to do business with you versus pushing you out the door because you're just somebody selling another product. And so we just, we solve people's problems and that's how we are in their business. We do this same thing in real estate. Did you, uh, I'm going to go on an irrelevant tangent question for a minute. So if you were in the furniture business on a wholesale basis in the Northwest, did you ever sell to the, to Rubensteins? 
Uh, not in the Northwest. Um, we had, we were kind of a mid-level line. So there's middle, low, middle, high kind of thing. Um, and there's some, some, uh, companies out there that were carrying very high quality heirloom type products, you know, people that would buy and, and want to pass on down to the generations. And nowadays it's, it's not the same. Most people don't want heirloom quality. They want to be able to change their mind every three to five years and not feel guilty about it. Um, so we sold probably 80% of the clients that were in the Northwest as far as products go. That was the line I was carrying. I see. Got it. Irrelevant. Uh, they, yeah, they were good. kind of a prominent furniture store in Southern Oregon, Eugene, and, you know, up in the Portland, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I know, yeah. I know an heir of that, of that company. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. What I'm just gleaning from what you've been saying is that, and and I appreciate what you're saying about sales, is you were, it sounds like what you really were, obviously very smart, but but it sounds like you worked, 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 you're super, you're, you're, you're a hard worker, hustler. How did you find out about real estate? And I know you, you did a lot of single families. How did you find out about it? And when did you start it? And what did you do? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's really interesting. Um, if I can go into this and not a tangent, but if I could just just cover this little topic of unlikely mentors. Um, I, I talk about this a lot these days with people because I, I think oftentimes we think we need a mentor or we need a pedigree or we need a, a formal education to accomplish something. And you don't. I mean, you really just need to put in some effort, educate yourself. It could be anything. It could be books. It could be podcast episodes you're listening to like this, right? There's a lot of great guests on here that you you talk to. Um, and, you know, I think uh, many of us go through life just kind of feeling incomplete. You know, we don't, we don't know what's possible. You know, we're, we're, we kind of accept that, right? It's like, well, I don't know and I don't have a positive circle of influence, so I don't know any other way. Right. And so we sort of accept that. And I think the solution in some cases is opening yourself up to unlikely mentors. And I'll give you an example real quick in, in just a second of my unlikely mentor and how I got into real estate. And I say unlikely mentor because this person is not a mentor. They'd probably hit you in the head with a stick if you tried to call them a mentor. They're they're not a mentor, but they actually are. And you know, it's interesting. Forbes real estate was quoted as 14% of mentors are actually only 14% of mentors are actually. Uh, formal mentors, the ones that were established as mentors, and like over 60% are informal. They're not mentors. They're just relationships that you have, right? And and these unlikely mentors provide perspective. So for me, um, I was in the stock market. I was investing and, and I thought, you know, well, this is the way. I would think I was averaging like 7%. After I started making money in sales, my my CPA told me, you need to put money away, otherwise you're going to pay all these taxes. And so that led me down this journey to explore. I went into the stock market, was plugging along. And uh, during a chance lunch one time, we started talking about real estate, a friend of mine, and he started educating me on the power of rentals, right? And 
um, we're, we're back in the napkin, back and forth. And uh, I had this epiphany. I said, man, I'm, I've been missing out and missing out with the depreciation, the cash flow, the equity that could be created. And so um, I just planted a fire in me that I just couldn't put out. So I read about five real estate books when I got home from that lunch, just a chance meeting. We started talking about real estate and uh, started doing fix and flips, a little bit of land. And uh, when I made the decision to scale and bring on a larger team and all of that, that's when we dove into multifamily. But yeah, it was a matter of somebody just um, articulating in a way that just connected with me. And that's that's the challenge we all have, I think, is we have a frame of reference, a paradigm that we live through. And it's oftentimes hard for us to shift because we don't have the right influences around us. And it can just take that one unique relationship that you may or may not have in your immediate circle of influence that hits you like a ton of bricks. And you say, aha, they explained it a certain way and it makes sense to me. And then you take that and you start educating yourself and you run with it. Well, I think one of the differences between really successful people and people that aren't as successful is that successful people can identify that that informal mentor is that informal mentor presents oneself and the ability to see the opportunity because any number of people would have been at that same lunch that you were and not have taken the, and not have gleaned the same message, nor would they have gone home and bought five real estate books. And then and then out of the people that would have done that, maybe 2% of them would have actually read the books. And then out of those, maybe like 0.01% would have actually done anything. And so that's my cynical view of things. But um, that's why you're successful, you know, because um, uh, one of my wife's, well, actually my wife's best friend who is very unsuccessful, but but has said one thing and, and it's, you know, coming from an incredibly unsuccessful person. I think it's the most profound thing on success I have ever heard, ever read. And like you, I, I read and I talk and blah, 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 and I have my own path. But here's what she says about successful people. Successful people are successful because they are willing to do what other people aren't. 100%. And it, it's just the most unvarnished, distilled down to its very essence. You know, anyway, I am digressing and in, 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 in waxing eloquent to the sound of my own voice. Um, when, when you started doing the fix and flips, what, where were you and, and where were you living and where did you do that? I was uh, in Southern Washington. And the way I started was just looking at markets that I could actually afford to buy a fix and flip, which was, uh, I'll just give you the numbers quickly. It was I had about $50,000 that I had saved up from um, driving the same car for, you know, 14 years or whatever it was, 12, 14 years. <laughs> and I saved those car payments and then I owned the car, right? And so I, I had this money and that's what he was talking to me about is why are you sitting on all this cash? You don't need the cash, right? I, I didn't have children. I didn't have debt. He said, you need to put that money to work and you don't want to put it in the stock market. And this is where it all started. So I, I realized, okay, well, after reading these books, um, and this is before like bigger pockets had their calculators and stuff. I actually built my own spreadsheets to figure out how to analyze these deals and uh, and said, well, if I if I buy a property for 100,000 and put 20,000 down, that's 20%. That gives me about 20 to $30,000 to renovate or give me a little safety net if I need. And I'll go find a property. And so I started analyzing all these markets, trying to figure out where can I afford to buy a property like that? And this was, you know, 2000, I think 2013, maybe on oh, my first single families. I bought some land before that a little bit, but and traded, but, and I had a single family residence of my own. Um, and that's how I decided to buy my first property. And so people were saying, well, why are you buying in that market? Why are you buying in that market? And I said, because the data is telling me to buy there and that's what I can buy. I'm not, it's not personal. You know, I'm not attached to these properties. 
I mean, I think that's important as well for people. Don't get attached. Don't feel like you have to buy in your neighborhood or or buy a certain type of asset. Make sure you're buying within your comfort zone and that so you, you don't hurt yourself by running out of money or, or needing to drive or fly far away if that's not your comfort zone. Uh, multifamily is a whole different animal for me. I'll tell you some crazy stories about that later. But in the single family space, that's what I did. And then I just kept doing that like every six to eight months and figured out how to bring other people's money in. And then we we had some huge success, started a property management company to run them all. And it was great. What So what market was it? Uh, I was in, well, the first houses I bought was in Aberdeen, Washington. They were over towards the coast. Actually, ironically, it's it's where um, Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets actually started buying his first properties. It's funny because he and I shared the same electrician. And I, I didn't know that at the time, right? Later on, I found that all out. But um, yeah, a, a market that you traditionally wouldn't be investing real estate in. It just, you know, homes that you could buy for 70, 80, $100,000 fix and flips, whereas everywhere else you were paying 150, 200,000 for them. I see, got it. Okay, cool. So you did your research in Aberdeen. Uh, and, and if they were, if they were, you know, selling for 70, 80, you put 20 grand into them, let's say, what were the rents? Yeah, uh, well, that's what's interesting is my performance originally on some of these properties, let's just say, for example, I, I built into my spreadsheet like eight ninety five, eight hundred ninety five dollars But by the time I actually renovated and leased them up, I was getting $1,100. And I remember all the experts were saying, well, if you can get $100 a month rent, passive cash flow, you're, you're dialed. And I thought that's way too low for me to be comfortable just with all the variables. Now, that, that, was, on, that was after uh, accounting for your CapEx, your maintenance, your vacancy, and all that. That was pure profit. But still, 100 was just too tight for me. And, and some people were breaking even and thinking, oh, I got property and eventually it'll, the value will go up. And I just wasn't comfortable with that. So my properties had to cash flow like north of 250, but closer to three made me more comfortable. And that's about what we hit on every time we bought one was close to the 300 range. So, And when you say we, Chris, in that particular context, who are you referring to? Well, later on, initially it was just me, but later on I would bring some people in. Hey, you want to make a quick 9% interest on you know, lending me $50,000 or whatever. Sure. So they'd put 50,000, help me with some of the seed capital, or maybe I would use uh, seller, uh, seller's equity or, you know, I got very creative as in, uh, as in how to structure these deals. So I say we, but really it was me. Um, just like right now, I'm the co-founder and CEO of my company, but there's eight of us on the team. So I always refer to team and we, well, at least I tried to anyways, because it's not just me. That puts all the stuff together. Okay. And so I get it. I get the background. Appreciate the uh, patience with my uh, drilling questions. <laughs> what was your foray into multifamily? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm plugging along. I've got you know a dozen or two of these single families. We had a property management company and it was great. But we, we were only cash flowing you know, a couple hundred, two, three hundred, whatever dollars a month per unit. And they just became a, a big headache. And there was just a lot of work involved and a lot of turnover with the tenants and things like that. Uh, and uh, I came across some podcasts and just, just heard about this multifamily syndication thing, started exploring. And um, ironically, and I know this is probably not real popular with some people, but a book I read from Donald Trump a long time ago, and I, I read everybody's books, right? Doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, I just, I love them. I listened to Barack Obama's biography. It was interesting, right? I, I like information from everywhere. And uh, this one thing Donald Trump said that stuck with me was, um, and this was a long time ago, was when you're buying something, don't be fearful of the scale of it. He basically said, you know, what's the difference between buying like the Sears Tower and buying a, a single family residence? There is no difference. It's just a lot larger scale, right? And it's a matter of overcoming fear. And I thought, well, that seems crazy to me. But the more I started learning about this space, I realized that is true. Yeah, you need a bigger team. You, maybe you need a little more equity. 
Um, you need some more expertise. Maybe you need somebody who's really, really good at underwriting your spreadsheets, et cetera. But it doesn't mean you can't go buy a 100-unit complex. And, and so what's funny is literally the first property I bought after diving out of single family was a 100-plus unit multifamily apartment complex. And I remember everyone talking about, you got to start slow. You got to go you know, 10 units, 20 units, 50 units. And I had a goal of 100 units for my first property, and we did it. And every unit we buy, buy or build now is 100 to 200 units minimum. Um, so yeah, yeah. So that's how we did it. Trump said, if you're going <laughs> to, if you're going to think anyway, you might as well think big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Hey, he's a knucklehead <laughs> sometimes, but man, he was right because it's that fear. It's that, uh, limiting beliefs as Tony Robbins says that holds us all back, man. Sometimes you just got to put a good plan together and execute with the right team. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, uh, so where was that first multifamily and when was it? Uh, we bought our first multifamily property in October 2019, and um, that was 112 units, 113 by the time we sold it. And um, today, I think we have nine properties, value add anyways, and then another six new developments, as well as another development that's now being occupied that started about two and a half years ago. So we've got a lot of um, value add CB class. And then we've got a bunch of luxury class A development. All right. And then I think, uh, and you can correct me if my memory is failing over the last 24 hours, but I think uh, gleaning from your website, what you do is you identify kind of uh, boots on the ground folks, other, you know, kind of seasoned operators, and you team up with them on a market to market, project to project deal. Is my memory serving me accurately or do I need to be corrected? No, pretty accurate. I think the the main difference is um, on our value add, we had um, partners that were on the ground, like actual partners, and we bought all over the, the Sun Belt. Basically, I would fly in every six weeks or so and help manage things. And then, of course, good property management. But on our new development, we have partnered with a developer. And that developer is our boots on the ground, but he's actually our our equal partner in these these assets that we're developing. And I think that's critical, especially when you're developing. So um, the, the challenge is, I'm sure, as you would know, Roger, whether it's your own personal experience or even just talking with lots of people on your podcast, uh, partnerships are very challenging. And a lot of it boils down to the, the fit and the work ethic and the mindset. And uh, you can only have so many cooks in the kitchen, right? So I think on the development side, it's really helpful to partner with a very good developer. Um, on the value add side, you should build out your team, even if it's just you and one other person, um, and then kind of try to stick with that because just bouncing around with different groups can be very, very challenging. We tried that in the beginning and uh, it just it just didn't work out very well. You know what? I am lost. I am not getting the distinction the way you're spelling it out with the partnership you have with the um with the ground up developer and others. You kind I I kind of I like I got lost in the translation, Chris. Sure. Help me out. Sure. So in value, I'll start with value add real quickly. So with value okay. add, you have syndications, right? Uh, some syndicators will. They, they will say I'm a syndicator and they will go out and find a deal, but they need sponsors, right? They need other partners that can bring equity. They need all these people. So they'll literally partner with a bunch of strangers, if you will, to do a deal. That's one way to do it, right? Or you can build out your own team. Like we built out our own team. We have eight people on our team, right? There's CEO, CFO, director of investor relations, asset managers, et cetera. They're Sterling Rhino Capital people. Several of them are employees of our company. So we are the syndicator. We're pretty much everything, equity, everything. On the development side, okay, um, if you are not a developer, but you want to develop properties, you need a developer. 
okay? So we, through a family friend with somebody who had been in the circle of influence for 30 years, uh, we partnered. So Sterling Rhino Capital went and partnered with this company that's a development firm that builds skyscrapers in New York and all over the country. And we said, hey, why don't we partner together? Because that one of the people that work for that company moved to Denver. And he's a friend of family, right? So I know him. And he said, I'm developing. You guys have an amazing system. You have all the employees. You have the infrastructure. You have the capital raising capabilities. Why don't we partner on all these development projects I'm starting to work on? I've got all this land in the queue. So they're one company. We're another company. We come in together to develop these properties. And that's the way we're doing it on the development side, right? Um, but it, But it's not easy to find that synergy among whether you're syndication group and you're trying to partner on value add and build buildings or buy buildings and renovate together, or you're developing, you have to find the right partnership, the right synergy. So then the developer is in charge of hiring the contractors and helping manage the process and dealing with the the uh, architects and the city planners and, and all of that. Um, I hope that makes sense. Okay, well, I, I see what I misunderstood from the outset is big track going back to my initial question. Um, what I what I didn't what I had wrong in my understanding was this on the value add side. I thought that you were identifying partners as well as you're describing your development partner. But what you're telling me is no. On the value add side, it, it's uh, Sterling Rhino. Basically, you you are the syndicator on the value add stuff. That's what I'm hearing. Correct. Correct. And we, when we started, we didn't know any better. You know, we had to bring a sponsor in, someone who had the track record in the very beginning when we did our first deal. We had a few other people. And then as I built the company, I started hiring employees and bringing in my own people to build out a nucleus that worked with our value and our, you know, our system. Um, and that allowed us to not have to partner with people anymore, let's say, right? So, but that's not, that's not a bad process or a system to follow. It's just, um, we found for us, it was better to bring it all in house. But on the development side, we just, we didn't have that kind of experience. And so we right. found using the expertise of a, de- a developer work worked much better. I mean, they have the track record and the experience and the relationships, private equity and all that. So, okay, now we're tracking. All right. Well, uh, thanks for clarifying yeah. that for me. From time to time, uh, I am, can be a bit obtuse. And some people would say more than time to time, like like my wife, for example. But <laughs> a, a, anyhow, how are you managing the, on the value add side, on the multifamily how are you dealing with management? Are you uh, just finding great third-party uh, managers? Because I know you're doing it in markets, you know, clearly. And w- where do you live right now, by the way? Yeah, right now I'm just south of Seattle, Washington. And my COO is over in New Jersey. And then we have partners from when we first started buying our value-add deals that are in Texas, where we have value-add deals, in Georgia, where we have value-add deals. Um, and that's primarily where our focus is right now. We have several funds, so we own pieces of properties in different states like Florida and Houston, Texas, Houston, Texas, and others. But um, right now I'm in, I'm in Washington state. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that, that part I was right on. And so how are you dealing on, on the value add stuff? Um, how are you dealing with the management piece of it, the property management? That's a very good question. And um, there's not an easy answer because it doesn't matter how good your property management company is. You, you are still in the thick of it every day. We, every day I'm involved in something with one of our properties and I have a pretty good sized team. I think it's important to vet a good management company, but understand you're going to manage them. And even if you have an asset manager, 
even your asset manager, you're going to have to manage. And even they are going to miss things with the property management company. So we do have an asset manager that manages most of our properties, but there are still things that go on that, um, you know, whether it's bandwidth or just because of the sheer volume of, of issues that come up, um, fires and, and crime and things of that sort, sewer lines, you name it. Um, you have to have several people on the team that kind of keep an eye on things. So yeah, we have an asset manager that handles most of that. And then obviously we have very good managers that are in our properties. We love all of our managers. We've gone through a few, but the ones we have now are spectacular. Um, so I hope that answers that question. It does. And when you say that, you know, so you say that basically, you know, Sterling Rhino, you guys are, are the syndicators yourself, but by the same token, you have partners in some of those different markets where you have the properties. So what are those partners doing versus what Sterling Rhino does? Yeah. So everybody gets assigned responsibility. So like I said, when we first started, we would put a few people together, like another, say, a sponsorship group or another syndication group and say, hey, you guys have a few deals in Texas. We want to be in Texas, what do you got going on? And we would partner on something, right? And that worked out fine. These all these folks are perfectly capable. But you know, you're running your own company. So there's gonna be there's gonna be things that you don't see eye to eye on, right? And it just works better when you can run your own company, your own syndications and kind of do things your way. Although many of the people we partner with are fully capable. They do a great job. Um, so we have an asset manager in particular that uh, that's her her specialty. That's what she loves. She's good at it and she's great with the managers. So we we said to her, why don't you asset manage these assets that we work together? And on our end, we might deal with the debt, the banking, um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, the insurance claims, let's say there's an insurance claimer coming through okay, you know, uh, making sure that um, your draw requests are coming in right things of that sort. Um, you know, if there's issues with personnel or investor relations, you've got to deal with, like we'll generally handle all the investor relations communication. So there's maybe, I would say four to five main, um, elements of a syndication. And you want to divvy those up based on the areas of responsibility that your team members or partners are good at, right? You don't want somebody dealing with investor relations if they're not a very good communicator. Um, if someone is, is, is kind of bullish and difficult to deal with, maybe they're just really stern in their personality. You don't want them talking to your local property managers because those folks need to be coddled. Right. And so that's how, how generally, if you're putting a team together, you want to look at things, you know, who's negotiating the deal in the beginning, right? Those kinds of things. Did, um, Chris, did you, um, on, like you said, there's, uh, you know, C to B value add, uh, starting a few years ago. It seems like most sponsors did bridge debt for those kind of properties. Uh, is that how you handled the debt piece of it on those properties? Yeah, we have some bridge um, or bank debt. We have some uh, insurance debt. We have, um, you know, like a, a private family insurance company. We have uh, Fannie Freddie debt that we've used. We've kind of used it all. Um, obviously, we're kind of in some challenging times now and debt's you know, getting a little interesting. But uh, what, what we found is as long as your performa is sound, and as long as you can show those debt coverage ratios and have adequate reserves, you can make it work. I will tell anybody listening, if you don't have experience in dealing with, let's say, bridge debt and dealing with the draw requests, it's really challenging these days just getting the banks with all the ins and outs of COVID and shortages of employees and things of that sort to efficiently give you your draw request. So I, I encourage people to just raise a little bit of extra money and make sure you have those reserves sitting there so that you can bridge that gap on when you're waiting for your draw money to come on your CapEx. So CapEx, short story being money that you're going to use to renovate that the bank is going to lend you, but they hold that money in a bucket. And sometimes you have to front that money to the contractors and then request that money from the bank that they're basically lending you. 
But instead of taking, you know, two, three, four weeks, sometimes, sometimes it's taking months today. So just be ready for that. Make sure you have enough money to cover you during that, that little Delta. Yeah, boy, words of wisdom, you know, (laughs) in related to that, you know, I like to your point, I talk to, you know, people all the time because of the podcast that I do. And then even outside of the podcast, but, uh, you know, some of the people I know that have been around for a while, you know, 20 plus years, they think a lot of people are going to, I don't know about a lot, but they think some, some sponsors are going to have some challenging times here coming up just because with, you know, kind of high leverage bridge debt, because, you know, the, they're, they're going to come to turn, you know, the terms are going to come, you know, to, to an end. And then, you know, the interest rates are way up in some of these markets. Occupancy is down and rents are down. And they're not going to be able to get an extension on there. And, and, and rate caps are going through the roof. They've gone like 10x in cost. And so there's going to be potentially some distress coming up in the next, I don't know, 3, 6, 12, 24 months. It's going to be interesting times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt about it. I, I think everyone has to you know, sharpen their pencils, be conservative, uh, whether you're going to sit on the sidelines or get in. Um, we chose to get in all through COVID, and I'm glad we did because we did really well while a lot of people sat on the sidelines. I think you just have to just follow your underwriting. Don't get you know overzealous and just buy something because you just feel like you have to do a deal. Um, the best deal is the deal you don't do. Um, but understand also that these interest rate hikes are going to be short-term I mean, I'm not an expert, full disclosure, but you can just look at the last, you know, 20 recessions or whatever we've had and you know they're going to come back down. You know inflation's going to get under control and it'll work out. Just uh, stick to your underwriting and if you can't find a good deal, then just be patient. Keep learning. Are you inclined to pursue more of those opportunities or, you know, as opposed to value add? I know a lot of people think that kind of the, the lemon has been squeezed on value add in terms of opportunities just because of the prices, you know, have, have gone so high, cap rates so low. I guess, how do you envision for you over the next, you know, year, couple of years uh, pursuant to that? Yeah, the, uh, I, the way I feel is is there, there are experts every, everywhere that will tell you whatever it is you want to hear, and you're going to believe whatever it is you want to believe. You're going to go whatever direction feels comfortable to you, right? Some people are like, uh, hey, value add, I'm going to keep going. There's going to be some deals out there. Okay, well, keep searching, keep fighting, right? Some are like, I'm going to pay higher interest. I'm going to raise more money. And I'm just going to deal with it because I know in 12, 18 months, interest rates will go down and we'll refi. Okay, fine. If that's what you want to do, you lower the returns for your investors. You set the expectation for the investors and tell them you're not going to have cash flow for 24 months or whatever you have to do. Maybe that works, right? For you and your investors, it's fine. For us on the development side, we realize, look, we're, we're getting construction quotes, let's say six and a half, seven percent or whatever. We know that our construction costs are going to be about, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, 70 to 80 percent cost of the value of what our properties are worth once we stabilize them. So it's a smaller percentage than what the properties are actually worth when we refi out into stabilized debt. And then we model this stuff with conservative rent increases. So we know that by the time we stabilize in three years, the whole world's going to look different, right? We can't live in this moment. You have to be cognizant of this moment, but not live in this moment. And so we model all this stuff knowing that interest rates are going to fluctuate, but our overall interest rate is probably going to be lower than where we see this peak coming. Um, and the other thing is too, at least in our class, I mean, we're building luxury class, infinity pools, Zen gardens, e-bikes, shared cars. I mean, we're state-of-the-art amenities. We know that the average household income uh, of our tenant base, say 90 plus thousand dollars a year, isn't going to have a, as many issues with the way this economy is today, especially when interest rates stabilize. 
um, as and inflation gets gets under control, as as maybe the let's say the working class perhaps might be in our in our C or or B class properties. So it's a different animal. You just have to underwrite and stick to your underwriting and be conservative and just make sure you raise enough capital. But what's what's interesting about this construction space is you know, the private equity and the banks, uh, they want to be in this space. I mean, these are amazing properties. We already have some offers, pre-offers. We haven't even broken ground. Our first one's breaking ground in February, right? One of six properties. So um, yeah, I think everyone just has to educate themselves and just, um, you know, follow your numbers. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, it's very interesting because, yeah, I mean, in the, you know, the trend too is that, you know, millennials aren't buying, you know, like they were, you know, 30 years ago, you have a much bigger renter pool. You know, the, the desirability of home ownership is not what it was. You've got work from home, you've got more transients. And so I think the trends are, uh, in, in definitely in your favor. Um, how did you come up with the name Sterling Rhino? Uh, that's funny. I'm asked that a lot. It's not, it's not as, uh, as cool a story as you might think, but one, I love the endangered species rhinos. Um, and, uh, the word Sterling was more about, you know, a recognizable, you know, kind of, um, I suppose trying to come up with something that would work with rhino. So I was like, oh, Sterling and I Bentley and I started coming up with these goofy names and I was like, oh, Sterling rhino. Well, Sterling could be Sterling silver. The rhino's gray. Okay, maybe that makes sense. And then capital versus investments versus equity, whatever. Um, but I, but it, it sparks a conversation and, and it starts to get people talking about rhinos, which I, I even buy chocolate that supports endangered uh, rhinos. So <laughs> Sterling Rhino Capital was really an LLC that I had developed for a different business out of Delaware um, that I never used. And I had it sitting there and I thought, you know what, let's tweak it a little bit. And we'll use that name. And it, most of all, it sparks conversation. So, <laughs> Hey man, it, no, it's a cool name. That's why I had to Thanks. ask the question. Thanks. Well, you've got your, your sleeves rolled up and um, I hope you wind up uh, with zillions of dollars uh, from what you're doing. And I'm sure you will. How how uh, how will somebody uh, get a hold of you, Chris, if they want to engage, find out more about what you're doing, maybe participate, et cetera? That's great. Um, you can just check us out at sterlingrhinocapital.com. We've got a podcast. Um, it's, we don't interview. We, we just more share value and information that we gain out there in the space. You can check that out. It's all on our website, social, YouTube, et cetera. Um, and I, I would just leave you, you, you guys with this, you know, just consider this unlikely mentor concept. I mean, it's, it's changed my life. Just if I could leave you with one call to action, it would be to just reach out to somebody that's not in your immediate circle of influence. Maybe someone you see around someone, maybe that you're encouraged by, or someone that you aspire to be like, and just simply ask them, can you just share with me, um, one of the, one of the greatest moments in your life, one of the things that, you know, you're most proud of or one of the most valuable lessons learned in your life it could be personal or business. And I'm telling you, it will spark a conversation and potentially an unlikely uh, mentor relationship that could could literally change your life. It's done it for me over and over again. And uh, it's a matter of just getting outside your comfort zone and just asking people questions. And then and then do what most people don't do, which is actually listen to the answers. <laughs> yes, Roger. Yes, you got to listen. <laughs> All right. I look forward to doing this again next year, Chris. I want to get an update on on all of your projects and uh, have have a, a great Thanksgiving uh, next week. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share and uh, you guys have a great, a great weekend. Yeah, bye. <laughs> 